Appalachia and what he does with crew in Rochester. God, we ask that you would continue to bless his ministry and use him. And this morning, God, we open our hearts to your word. I ask that you'd use him in this place. We trust you. You're a great God. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Give him a hand as he comes to give us the word. Well, thanks, Jeremy. It's so good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, My wife and I, we've been excited to come out, and my brother and sister-in-law are visiting as well. Uh, Mike gave us a tour of the church uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were so impressed. And so congratulations on the new building and this new chapter that that God is beginning to write here. I wanted to show you a pic of my family. Um, Yeah, that's that's Sarah there on the right, and uh, Judah is our oldest. He's two and a half. And Oliver is our newborn. Uh, He's just two months old. He's right there in the back if you want to see him after service. Um, And so so that's our family. And uh, we love Syracuse. It's always great to get to come back to Syracuse. Uh, It has a special place in our heart. It's where my wife grew up. She grew up in suburbs right around here, Cicero, Baldinsville, Liverpool. Uh, She's an SU grad, and uh, her stepdad still uh, works at the university. And uh, it was in college where we met when we carpooled to a conference together. Uh, She was at SU and I was at New Paltz in the Hudson Valley. And uh, after I graduated, I moved here to Syracuse. And it was during that year that I met uh, Mike Maisie. And so I joined his first church plant here in Syracuse, which was Catalyst at the time. And, And Mike was really influential in my life. He took me under his wing, he mentored me, and he helped me as I prepared at that point, Sarah and I were about to be engaged as I prepared for marriage. And so I wanted to show you a picture of Mike and us. Um, yeah, that's Mike officiating our wedding. And uh, this August will be six years that Sarah and I have been married. Um, so, so, so this church and Mike and his ministry is a huge part of my story. It's a huge part of my development. And so it's a privilege, it's an honor to be here with you this morning to get to participate in what God is doing here, and to join in to this series in Exodus. So thanks so much for letting me be here, and thank you for your support and partnership with us. Uh, As Jeremy mentioned, Sarah and I work with Crew, which is a college ministry. We love college students, and we've devoted our life to helping college students come to know God. You know, I didn't have much of a spiritual background growing up, uh, really no religious tradition in my home. And it was in college where I was exposed to Christian community when I, was, when I was exposed to the message of Christ and decided to follow Jesus with my life. And that was about 10 years ago this summer. And so we have a special place in our hearts for college students as well. Um, so as I begin this morning and as we continue in the series in Exodus, I have a question. Have you ever thought about killing someone? Even for a moment, has that thought ever crossed your mind? I'm uh, getting some uncomfortable stares, um, <laughs> some nervous laughter. Uh, if you're new here this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, I, hope I'm not, I hope I'm not freaking you out. Uh, bear with me. No, but really, has that thought even for a moment ever crossed your mind? Um, you know, perhaps uh, in a moment of intense hatred or rage or maybe an offense that was committed against you was so intense, was so hurtful, that even for a moment that thought crossed your mind. And maybe if it wasn't to the extreme of murder, at least some type of physical harm seemed like the appropriate response in your mind to the hurt and the pain that you experienced at the hand of another. And so even for a moment, the response in your mind immediately was physical harm. I'll never forget when I was 10 years old, 
And my parents had divorced when I was young, and my mom remarried when I was five. And for whatever reason, I just never really connected with my stepdad. Uh, we had a really rocky relationship growing up, and I'll never forget this, this day in, when I was 10 years old. And I can't remember the exact circumstances. I can't remember what the argument was or why I was so angry with my stepdad. But all I remember was this intense hatred and me being up in my bedroom. And I was so filled with rage and hatred for my stepdad that I took a notebook and I scribbled down this note about how much I hated him and all the reasons. And I wrote, and when I get old enough and strong enough, I want to kill you. And then I, I was like immediately scared that I had even written that, that those thoughts had even gone through my mind. And so I ripped out the piece of notebook paper, crumpled it up, and threw it behind my dresser because I was so ashamed and scared that those thoughts had even gone through my mind. And really, you know, if I think about it, I was and I still am a product of our culture. We live in an extremely violent culture in an extremely violent world. And that isn't new. That isn't a 21st century paradigm. Uh, that's always existed. Uh, from the beginning, since man has fallen from their perfect relationship with God and sin entered the world and brokenness and heartache and pain, man has been violent. And murder has been a response from the beginning. Um, we can see in our culture, annually in the United States, about 14,000 homicides are committed. Uh, so that's 14,000 deliberate acts of murder. Um, that's not accidental death, that's not manslaughter, that's deliberate acts of murder. And you, you guys know that. I mean, even here in Syracuse, I think what I was looking up the statistics were about 25 murders per year uh, in the city. In Rochester, we're at about double that, about 50. We see in the news all the time. I mean, I don't know if it's increasing, but maybe the media just covers it more. But it seems like every other day, there's some incident, some reporting of a mass shooting or a tragedy. I mean, just last week in Charleston, absolutely terrible. People killed in their own church. There's terrorist bombings and beheadings. Uh, violence uh, is all around us. And so in a lot of ways, that's the culture I grew up in. We're surrounded by it. And, and to be honest, uh, we even see it as a form of entertainment. Some of Sarah and I's favorite shows are murder mysteries, right? We love, like, detective stories like Monk. Love that TV show and Blue Bloods and Elementary. These shows, obviously, they're entertainment, but they're all about murder and solving these murders. It's all around us. And you might have guessed what my text is for this morning based upon my introduction. Uh, I have this simple phrase, this simple statement in command, you shall not murder, as I continue in this series in Exodus. Before we look at the text, I want to sort of set the stage, and I want to continue the pattern that Mike and the elders have been going here. And, and, and I want to sort of pause and, and elevate our expectations for this morning in this passage. Understandably, Exodus and the Ten Commandments are a very familiar set of commands, a very familiar story. If you grew up with any sort of religious training or background, you know these commandments, you know these stories. And even if you didn't grow up in the church like me, uh, the Ten Commandments uh, have permeated our culture. Uh, Judeo-Christian culture, Western culture, these are sort of foundational, right? And even outside of Western culture, uh, you can find a lot of these commandments in other cultures. They're pretty universal in terms of a moral standard. So as we approach them again this morning, 
And as I was preparing for this message, I just thought it was so necessary um, to have a proper expectation and to sort of leave some of our assumptions, some of our prior conceptions, to not tune out. I'm literally talking about one phrase this morning, you shall not murder. And so I don't want you to tune out this morning. I want us to have a proper expectation as we come before this text. Just like the Israelites as they gathered around Mount Sinai, we're, we're all, they were in fear, and, and as God spoke to Moses, I mean, I want that to be sort of our expectation this morning, that, that God, you're going to speak to us. And one of my goals this morning is that you will never be able to read this simple command the same, that you shall not murder. I hope this morning, and that's why I'm so excited to be here, because I believe in this simple command, there's so much that we can learn, both about God and how we can interact with people right around us. So I want us to come before this text with a reverence, with an expectation of how awesome God is, the amazing fact that he would reveal himself to us and how much we can glean and learn from this simple command and what he might do this morning in our hearts, not just for academic knowledge, but for literal life transformation that we would leave different, that God would speak to us and help us to change, to become more like Jesus and represent him better in the world. So I know those might be lofty goals and that might be a little dramatic, but I feel like it's proper because it's so easy to come to familiar scripture and to sort of just be casual. Okay, you know, you shall not murder. I'll see you in the back after service, you know. And so I just want to sort of elevate our expectations as we come to the text this morning. Uh, So we're in Exodus 20, and I'm going to continue the pattern of reading through from verse 1. It'll be up on the screen as well. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Last week, Mike talked about a really famous interaction between Jesus, where Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And and, and Mike kind of summarized Jesus' response by saying, you know, Jesus said to love God and to love people or to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, 
you can really see the Ten Commandments broken up that way, right? The first four had to do with our relationship with God, how we interact with God, and then the latter six had to do with the way we interact with people. And I want to use that framework for my message this morning. And so I have two goals this morning for my message. The first part will be about knowing God better so that we can love him more. And the second part will be applying this passage to our lives so that we can better love those around us. Those are my two goals. A little historical context just to get us sort of in the zone of when these commandments were given. Uh, it's really hard, you know, living in Syracuse or the surrounding suburbs to really picture what this is like. And Mike and the elders have done a good job of setting it up. But just a refresher, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million people in the wilderness having just been rescued from slavery in Egypt, which they had endured for over 400 years. They're encamped with makeshift tents, babies, livestock, pots, pans, uh, and they're encamped around this mountain, and Moses is receiving revelation from God. It's tremendous. Uh, it's an awesome event. You have a whole spectrum of people I can only imagine with all sorts of religious devotion and belief, some that are nominal, some that are cultural, maybe some that doubt, maybe some that are very devout. But regardless of where they're at, they have just witnessed amazing power from God. All the plagues, the Passover, being rescued from Egypt, incredible, incredible redemption, all the miracles along the way. And now, after all that, God is revealing himself to them making a covenant with them. And this is where we, this is sort of the context for where we're at uh, with this commandment. Um, the sheer fact that God says, you shall not murder, it's a negative command, you don't do this, means that murder was and is a big problem and a big deal in our society. Like I said, from the beginning, people taking other people's lives has been an issue. It's been a problem. It's been a pattern, and we see that all throughout Scripture, right? I mean, the, one of the first stories in Genesis is Cain killing his brother. Uh, and, and murder throughout the Scriptures, you can see countless, countless uh, examples of murder taking place, the taking of another's life. Think about, you know, David uh, after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then he kind of orders the death of Uriah, uh, the desire to take someone else's life. And I want to differentiate as we begin and we think about this command, you shall not murder. Uh, I'm not talking about killing in general. This passage, this, this, this text isn't talking about just the taking of a life in general. It's a very specific command to not murder. Um, to be comprehensive, other forms of killing would include capital punishment as delegated by God to a government to institute or... Uh, capital punishment or war, right? So in the Old Testament, you see lots of sanctioned war. Um, we're not talking about that. Uh, and that's a whole other conversation about what constitutes in, in our modern age a just war. And is that, you know, we're not going to go there. But just to say that's on the radar in terms of taking a life. We're not talking about manslaughter or accidental death. This is a very specific form of taking of a life, murder. Uh, one commentator put it like this, that the Hebrew word here for murder is talking about um, the improper, selfish, 
taking of a life without authorization. The improper taking of a life with selfish reasons or motivations without authorization. Um, and so that's what we're talking about this morning, a very deliberate act of killing for a selfish reason without authorization. It's improper. It's not good. Uh, so that's sort of some context uh, for what God is saying here. You know, I think there's a few things that we can learn about God's character from this simple phrase, you shall not murder. And this is my first goal, that as we think about this commandment, we would see God more clearly and know him better. The first thing is this. The reason that we, we don't murder, the reason why this is so offensive to God, the reason this violates his standard is because God is the creator. In Genesis, it says that God created man and woman in his image. God is the creator. He is the origin, the designer, the architect, the one who formed us. The Psalms say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are his workmanship, Ephesians says, or his masterpiece. God delights in what he creates. And as a result, to destroy that creation, destroy the image of God, is a violation of his character and of his will. And by image, what I mean by that is that people are created to model and represent certain parts of who God is. So you think about consciousness and emotion and creativity and innovation, the, the ability for relationship, the ability to receive and give love. These all have their origin in the person of God. And as he creates us, he endows us with those attributes that are found in him, made in the image of God. He is the creator. And as a result of being the creator, he has ownership. He, he, we are his property in a sense because he has created us. And as a result of, of that creation, just by the sheer fact that God has created us, he has endowed value. Totally independent of performance, totally independent of what we choose to do with our lives and the mistakes that we make, Think about the most vile and, and, and terrible person that you can. That person still has distinct and, and significant value just in the sheer fact that they are made in the image of God and that God created them. I just want to stop there because that statement may seem kind of simple or um, just sort of common sense, but we live in a world that devalues human life in incredible ways. We devalue life in so many ways, in our culture and around the world. It's just, it's, it's, yeah, the more you learn and the more that you uncover about how humanity is um, devalued, it's, it's really shocking. I'm a World War II history buff, and one of the things that shocks me the most about World War II is the way in the Holocaust and in prison camps that humanity was devalued that dignity was stripped away and they were not given respect for the humanity that they had. And it happens all around us. It happens everywhere. Um, it shocks me. It's one of the saddest things for me, um, having a child with special needs, is the unbelievable and incomprehensible reality that it is legal and prevalent. Uh, and, and if this has been your situation, I say it with sensitivity and grace, and there is forgiveness in Jesus, but it just is incomprehensible to me that when you find out a child has Down syndrome before they're born, you can choose to kill that child based upon 
their disability. So we place value on what a person can do, what they bring to the table. And if that person doesn't meet certain standards and criteria, they are devalued. That is totally opposite and contrary to the beautiful reality that we see in Scripture, that people have value just based upon the fact that they're created in the image of God and that God made them, not based upon what they can do, not based upon what they bring to the table, not based upon their performance, but our culture is so opposite of that. We value people on what they do, what they achieve, how productive they are, how successful they are, how effective they are. Don't miss, caught up in this commandment, do not murder, is the beautiful reality that God is the creator and he gives value based upon the fact that he is the architect, he is the designer. I'm a painter, I'm an artist myself, and uh, actually I wanted to show you a painting I just completed a couple days ago. I'll come up. And uh, loved working on this painting. And I was thinking, what if I returned home uh, from Syracuse today? We live in Rochester. And, uh, and as I returned home, I, I went down, I, I saw that it looked like there had been, uh, you know, someone had broken into my home. As I went down in the basement to my little studio where I create my paintings, I saw my new painting that I had just created slashed and defaced, destroyed. I would be so angry. I would be very sad because of all the hard work I put into it, to the thought, to the intention, to the time, with the effort, the love, the devotion that I had put into this painting. Hours spent creating it, thinking about it, looking at the composition, studying it. And I'm an imperfect human artist. Think about the majesty of our creator who creates perfectly, the order of our bodies. Think about how it violates his character when one of his creations is destroyed without his permission or authorization. That's the same sense, and that's just a painting. Now, it would be a much different scenario if I decided to destroy it. If I said, yeah, you know what, it's not that great. Um, I think I could do better. Uh, or, you know what, and I've done that with some of my older art. It's like, I don't have enough room for this. Uh, yeah, I made that when I was, you know, 18. I don't really like it that much anymore. Let's just get rid of it. I can do that because it's my property. I created it. But for someone else to do it, that's a violation. It's much different when it's your property. And I think that's the same sense here of God's ownership of humanity because he created it. And so the first thing, the first couple things that I think we glean and we see revealed about God's character is that he's the creator and that he values human life. He values human life. And that's so important for us to know. So as we interact in the world, it changes the paradigm and the way that we see people. We no longer see people based upon what they can do for us or their value to us or how effective or productive, X, Y, and Z. We see people through the lens of being made in the image of God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man. People are not just flesh and blood. They have an eternal soul that has an eternal destiny people value to God, and so they matter to us. So much so, and I think this is sort of the exclamation point on that statement that, that God values human life, so much so that he would send Jesus to become a man, that, he, that, that God would literally take on human flesh, walk among us, live the perfect life that we could never live, and then willingly go to the cross and die on our behalf. 
paying the penalty that we deserve for our sin, rising again, offering forgiveness to all who will place their faith in him. That's the gospel. That's what Renovation Church is so excited about. That's what's changed my life. And, it's what, and, I, and I believe it's the exclamation point on this statement that God values human life. You don't die for things you don't value. You don't die for causes you don't value. You're only willing to die for something that you love very dearly and that is very precious to you. I think that should just encourage us so much. And to think about it like this, that God died for us while we were still sinners. When we brought really, when we could bring nothing to the table, not based on our performance, not based on our good deeds, not based on our ability. And he died for us because he values us. I think that's what we can see revealed in this simple passage, you shall not murder. Also, when I think about murder, I think one of the main components um, is a sense of justice. I think often uh, murder is uh, whatever, done or uh, perpetuated because of a sense of justice, right? You're offended. There's been a hurt that's so vile to you that the only response seems to be to take justice into your own hands and to end that person's life. And I don't mean to minimize pain. I don't mean to trivialize injustice. There is great injustice in the world. And sometimes it seems like the only way <laughs> to see that justice realized is murder, is just destruction of that person because of the vile act they have committed. I get that. I don't mean to minimize or trivialize pain that you may have experienced or loved ones have experienced. Uh, but I think an error that is committed when, when murder takes place is when we take justice into our own hands and we become the judge. When we put ourselves in the place of God or we put ourselves in place of the authorities that God has established for law and order. When we do that, although we may feel righteous, we may feel justified because of the offense that was committed, what we're really doing is an act of pride usurping the authorities that God has put in place. And we're forgetting the fact that perfect justice will always be served, 100% of the time. The reality is this. Each of us will either pay with our lives an eternal separation from God. We will pay the penalty in full more than we could ever imagine the punishment that we deserve for our sin or we place our faith in Jesus who paid for that on our behalf. So justice is served either way. Justice is served in the internal sense of the word when a wrong is committed. Either that person will pay for eternity or by God's grace and his mercy, they will turn to Jesus who paid for it on their behalf. Justice, God is a just God, perfectly just, more than we could imagine, perfectly holy, I think we learn from this passage that he, he prohibits murder because of that. And then lastly, uh, as we think about how does this help us to know God better, I think all these commandments are a symbol of his love to us. You know, sometimes um, people can think about Christianity, you know, as a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, it's all about, like, what I should do and what I shouldn't do. It's all about my behavior. Man, I don't see it that way. I see these as this beautiful standard, but really out of love for our protection. Not murdering each other actually creates a better society. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, it does, actually. Um, having laws in place that prohibit murder is a good thing. Um, there's some parts of the world where there's not much law and order, and murder is a big deal, and there's no retribution. There's no justice. We can be thankful that, for the most part, murder is hated in this country and, and prosecuted. Um, God established that to restrict sin. God established that to create order and to protect us out of his love, as all the commandments do. And so what I think we can lastly learn about God's character from this simple phrase, you shall not murder, and all the commandments, is that God cares for us deeply, that he loves us. Just like with my boys, as they get older, I want to teach them things to protect them. Hold my hand when we cross the street, X, Y, you know, you know what I'm talking about. They're protective out of love. Okay, that was my first goal, to help us see God more clearly, his character and his attributes. But at this point, you might be thinking, okay, that was a really great review. Maybe I learned a little bit more about God, but how does this really apply to me? Uh, I've never murdered anyone. Um, I don't really think about that often. Don't feel tempted to commit murder on a regular basis. Um, And so what does this commandment in 2015 really speak to me? And I'm really thankful that I don't have to come up with this on my own and that Jesus addresses this commandment specifically in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And so that's where we're going to turn to next. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 23. Verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Like Jesus does with some of the other commandments, he gives us this beautiful gift in that he expands and deepens uh, and gets to the root of this commandment, you shall not murder. And he very specifically links anger and outbursts of anger, verbal abuse perhaps, to the same commandment of physical murder. I think that's really important. So at this point in the service, if you've been thinking, out of all the commandments, I think this is the one I've kept perfectly. I can't really say much about the others, but I have not murdered anyone. I'm sure of that. Um, I hate to disappoint you, uh, but I'm almost confident that everyone in this room has violated the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, based upon Jesus' further description of it here. All of us have. Have you ever been so angry at someone that you lashed out verbally? Probably. And if you haven't actually said something, if you've said it in your heart, it's the same thing. And I love how Jesus doesn't let us off the hook, that he, he helps us get to the core of our hearts. He shines light into our hearts so that we can't hide. So we can't put up a false facade of our exterior behavior and say, well, I'm good. Check that off the list. Never done that. He gets to the root of the problem. He gets to the source of the issue, our broken hearts. All of us have broken this commandment. All of us have murdered according to Jesus' definition. 
this passage is pretty simple. The, the word raka is just, was just an Aramaic insult. We have different ones in our society today. I'm sure you could think of a few. Um, maybe you've used a few <laughs> now and then uh, when anger is just out of control. And I know for me, you know, before I was married, I never thought I was an angry person. Never thought I, I, I don't know if anyone can relate with that, but um, I never thought I struggled with anger. I thought I was just a really like peaceful guy and pretty calm. And um, then I got married and, you know, things got harder and, you know, living with, Sarah's living with me, I'm living with her, two sinful people, different preferences. And all of a sudden I started to see these outbursts of anger coming out which really shouldn't have surprised me much because in a lot of ways that's what I saw modeled in my home growing up, but I just thought I would be different. Um, but all of a sudden these different patterns were coming out and, um, and I really had to take a look at why that was. I think one of the most important things to know when we're analyzing our own hearts and evaluating what's going on in there, it's not enough to just say, well, don't be angry at your wife or don't swear at that driver. I mean, it's not about just eliminating a behavior. It's what Jesus is trying to do here, getting to the root of the problem. For me, I can tell you that a lot of my anger and a lot of the ways that I lash out at Sarah and others, even if it's not verbal, if it's in my mind or if it's in my heart, a lot of it stems from, being, from feeling out of control, from a lack of control, from a feeling of helplessness. And as a result, of those feelings of being out of control and feeling helpless in a certain situation, I improperly become the judge and I blame others, my own hard life, the suffering I have to go through, and I lash out as a result. I, I try to punish others and put myself in that position of being the judge and executing a sentence. But it all stems from this being out of control, this being helpless, which really stems from a lack of trust in God and a lack of understanding that he is my security, that he is in control when I am out of control, that he is my help when I am helpless. And so because I refuse to go to him with those inner things, that's when all sorts of brokenness and messiness starts to erupt. And that's where I see anger really taking place. And I mean, it, it, honestly, it was this week. You know, um, we just came back from a trip and we had left my son uh, with my, my parents-in-law and he was still kind of getting back on his schedule and there was one night where, you know, I was just getting ready to go to bed at about 11. And at 11.30, Judah was up. And he stayed up until 2.30 in the morning. And I was just so exhausted. And Sarah's exhausted. And, you know, I got up a couple times. I tried to soothe him. And he just wouldn't go down. And he's just, like, happy as a clam. Just plain, you know, but he won't go to bed. So I'm trying to plead with Sarah, can you get up? please, like, I can't do it, and, and, and Sarah's just so tired, she's like, I can't do it, and so my response was anger, I was really angry at her for not helping, and in that moment, it, we become so irrational when we're in these moments, and we feel so justified and self-righteous, like, I'm seeing this clearly, she's definitely in the wrong, she should be helping, why isn't she getting up, totally disregarding the thousands of other ways that she helps throughout the day, but in that moment, we place ourselves in this superior position of being the judge and of being God, and we totally see blindly and improperly, and we're clouded. And in those moments, we execute judgment. And for me, it was, Sarah, you're selfish. Ooh, <laughs> not a good thing to say to your wife. Don't say that. I'm not proud of that. I don't say that. We, we've, 
we've been able to talk about that. I, I don't say that. No, that's a really hurtful thing to say. That's not a very nice thing to say to someone, especially your wife. Um, anyway, so that's my story, you know. And the next day, you just feel so terrible. Like when you've got a little bit of rest and you can think clearly again, you're like, why did I do that? But it's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. It's violating this commandment. It's proving the fact that I'm still a work in progress. I still sin. I still mess up. And really, isn't that the purpose of the law, right? Isn't that the purpose of the law, to reveal our deficiencies, to reveal our flaws? Jesus gives a standard, just as God gave to Moses, that is totally beyond our reach. We just can't keep it perfectly as much as we want to. The standard is too great. It's too high. Which I think is the purpose of the law. It's the purpose of why Jesus helps reveal it even more so that our hearts are open. So we realize, I am helpless. I am a wreck. And I hope that as we evaluate our hearts and see our own inabilities to keep this command, that it helps us turn to Jesus, who was perfect on our behalf. Do you know Jesus lived a perfect life and never sinned in this way? He never broke this commandment. He was never angry in an unrighteous way. He never lashed out. He was never verbally abusive. He never yelled at his kids. He didn't have any kids, but if he did, he, ne- he would never yell at anyone in that way, in a, in a hateful way that's being described in this passage. He was perfect on our behalf. And so as our sin is revealed, as our hearts are opened up, and we, we begin to consider, man, how, do I, how am I guilty of this? I hope it helps us turn to Jesus, who is perfect on our behalf, who went to the cross on our behalf to die for the punishment that we deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what we're so excited about here, is that it's not about our ability to perform and keep these commandments, but it's about us realizing our inability and turning to Jesus. And then, by his power, as he enables us to more and more walk with him. That's what it's about. So to kind of summarize, as we kind of wrap it up, two goals. To know God better. In this command, you shall not murder. I think we see that God is the creator, that he values life. I think we see that he's the judge, that justice will be served. He's a just God. And that these commands are really because of his great love for us, for protection. And how does it apply to us personally? Each of us has a proclivity to act in a way that Jesus described. Perhaps it's in your marriage, just like I described. Maybe you're just awful to your spouse when no one's around. And you lash out in anger. And I don't know what those idols are for you. I don't know what those things are that cause you to do that. But I would encourage you to process that, evaluate What is it that causes me to lash out? Where am I not going to God for what I need and instead blaming and punishing others? Each of us can connect with this passage, even though it was thousands of years ago, because each of us struggles with this. And I think it could change the way that not only we interact with our families, but our neighbors, our coworkers, that we could become people um, who are quick to confess our sin, that are quick to seek reconciliation and ask for forgiveness. I wanted to end with the second part of the Matthew passage. Um, Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 23 through 26, 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And just to paraphrase, Jesus is talking about the unfortunate consequences of us breaking this commandment, when we lash out in anger, when conflict exists because of our offense to someone else. And his exhortation, his command to us, is to not let those things fester. If there's a conflict that you know you're responsible for, do everything you can to make it right. Do everything you can to live at peace with one another. Keep short accounts with your wife or your husband. Ask for forgiveness. That's your part. That's your responsibility. And I think that's Jesus' command to us in response to how we break this commandment. Do not murder is a call to know God more fully. Do not murder is a call for us to examine our hearts and to see how we break it. Do not murder is a call to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Because think about it. Although Jesus never murdered, even in his heart in anger, he was murdered on behalf of those who do commit murder. Jesus was murdered on our behalf. And so we can turn to him for forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you're accomplishing through Renovation Church in North Syracuse and around this area. God, we're grateful for the opportunity to hear your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being with us here and for helping us and teaching us. Thank you, God, that you value life, that you love us, that you've created us to know you. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that each of us would turn to him in our time of need. And we pray in Jesus' name.